Welcome to Nothing of Champagne, a podcast heading for one hell of a season finale. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey Corey. At the start of this year, before the event, Steve and I picked our political movers and shakers of 2020. We're going to revisit them and see who was a better soothsayer than the other. Remember, we pick the leader, the cabinet minister, the shadow minister, lots of the different categories we'll go through uh, at the start of the year. And we checked in, I think, about April to see how our picks were doing. It's about who we thought would make waves on the UK political scene. And we are now going to go through each of our picks. This is the start of our wrapping up 2020, even though the, one of the big things of 2020 for Brexit negotiation is not sorted. But we'll park that and we will decide whose picks were better using our completely subjective formula. We picked leaders at the start of 2020 who we thought would move and shake. And I think I was quite lucky on this one. I won the toss, so got to pick Boris Johnson first. Steve, you picked Nicola Sturgeon. Interesting one, this, isn't it? I suppose both have been quite influential and shaken and moved in their own particular brand of politics. But the interesting thing is you can also look at both of them and go, they're on their last legs now. Sturgeon in Scotland, a lot of questions have come out around some of the various bits and pieces around um, like Alex Salmond and some of the various accusations and things that were made against him. There's also been a lot of questions about performance um, of the Scottish government in a number of key areas, such as education, uh, healthcare during the pandemic as well. Like, I'm not necessarily expecting Nicola Sturgeon to um, suddenly not be a leader of the SNP anymore, but for the first time in basically since she became leader, you can start to see the cracks appearing in her leadership. Um, and uh, as a result of that, you can go, mm, she's uh, potentially at the beginning on the way of, of, of the way out of, uh, of being in her position. I think that's a little bit of a pessimistic reading, actually, Nicola Sturgeon, because it's, it's odd because in one way, you're absolutely right. So you've got um, the questions over the Alex Salmond affair, and uh, questions in the Scottish Parliament, I think, this week about the role her husband was playing as well. Um, and the accounts of meetings that he'd apparently had that seemed to contradict accounts that Nicola Sturgeon had, had met, all that sort of stuff. You mentioned the um, care homes as well. Also, Catherine Calderwood, who is Scotland's chief medical officer, broke lockdown rules, visited her second home earlier in the year. Nicola Sturgeon very publicly backed Calderwood before resigning. All of that is true. And yet... We are in a position where we're going to have Scottish elections in less than six months. The SNP are still riding high in the polls. I think Sturgeon's probably still one of the more effective politicians. She's a really good political communicator. And especially if we get a no-deal Brexit or even the hard Brexit we're looking at, that turbocharges the argument the SNP have been making about a Scottish another Scottish referendum. All of those things don't seem to be cutting through. Instead, she still seems to be quite in quite a strong political position. 
Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where we, we say it's not cutting through, but I reckon actually if you had some decent opposition to Sturgeon in Scotland, then you know what? I think you'd probably have a very different uh, set of scenery as we go into those Scottish elections. All of that is true, but then one could only beat who you're putting in front of. The fact is, the SRB is still doing well in the polls, so Nicola Sturgeon's personal approval ratings still are fine. I mean, so the question is, has she moved and shaken more on the British political scene than Boris Johnson? Our nation at the moment is in a psychological psychodrama, psychodrama not a psychodrama, that's low traffic neighbourhoods, a psychodrama placed inside Boris Johnson's head, where it doesn't seem to matter what's good for the Conservative Party or for business or for the nation for our position in the world it's literally the contents of boris johnson's gut and i don't want the contents of boris johnson's gut to be anywhere near my deciding my future especially when they're filled with turbot and wasabi mash it's interesting because normally when we talk about movers and shakers and we, we we try and look at what have they done that's been successful what are the almost like kind of like what's their annual legacy for lack of a better term like what what did they achieve this year because of everything that's been going on like you can't necessarily do that because it's just been pandemic like really the uh when you're trying to compare the two you have to go which one screwed up more which one had the least bad year i'd say probably sturgeon just because as you say uh she's remained popular within the electorate her favorability ratings haven't really shifted that much uh, as you say it might come down to the fact that she is just a step above in terms of being a political communicator and being an actual talented politician but when you compare that to johnson who just a year ago won a general election with had decent favorability ratings which have now cratered he's now behind keir starmer on the ratings for who would be the best prime minister his lead over Labour Party is basically neck and neck now with some polls putting Labour ahead. I can't see how you can make a case for Johnson having had a good year. But this is about movers and shakers, isn't it? I think usually we try and say what has their effect been on the nation's landscape. Yeah, but in, in, in that this instance, though, because everything has just been so pandemic-centric, really, no, nothing like nothing has necessarily i would say had a massive impact because everybody's been reactive i mean that's sort of what leaders are meant to do to be fair Mm. if the question was who's on track for an excellent 2021 well the question i think is sturgeon if you're looking at who's come out of it better personally it's probably sturgeon if we're looking at it from a Who's the person who's going to plunge the country into chaos because of the contents of his psyche? Who locked us down too late, destroyed public trust by not sacking Dominic Cummings when he blatantly breached lockdown? Who ignored the scientists in September to mean that we had a late circuit breaking when we should have had one put in place late September? Well, then Boris Johnson is quite obviously the person who has had his grubby little fingers, his fingerprints smeared with jam are all over the carcass of the UK in 2020. The thing, the, the thing is, though, just the, by, by virtue of Johnson being the prime minister, like the prime minister will, on that criteria, the criteria, the, the prime minister will always win. And that's why you always make sure you win the toss, because then it's dead. <laughs> just ask Gordon Brown. 
not sure. Let's let's call it score draw for now. So ministers, then. Um, yeah. So you had the, the the fun of picking on this one, and you picked Rishi Sunak. I picked Preeti Patel. This is an interesting one, isn't it? Because again, Sunak, like Johnson, given that he was chief secretary and then his chancellor, his stars massively gone up. But also, Sunak has made every single wrong call this year. Yeah, and uh, on the uh, flip side of that, you've got Pretty Patel, who's been interesting in her role <laughs> in many ways. Well, yes, it has moved and shaken in very much a literal sense, it seems. Yeah. My gut says, uh, uh, says, it still says it's Sunak, because he's gone, he went from, he went from Chief Secretary of the Treasury to Chancellor of the Exchequer, became one of the most visible members of the of, of the government. And yes, he's gotten every call wrong, but they were his calls. He was the one that seemed to be able to influence the government to go in these directions. That suggests that he has been very influential. That suggests that he has been the one to uh, exert some form of power. I, I would agree. There's an... Uh... I'm going to say this for the four millionth time on this podcast. There's a very interesting Stephen Bush article looking at <laughs> how everyone seems to love Rishi Sunak and denigrates Matt Hancock when actually it's Matt Hancock that's got the big decisions right, looking at you know, yep. investing and pushing for, for vaccines when Sunak's eat out to help out does seem to have been credited with another spike in coronavirus cases. Um, also the fact that he was trying to wind down a lot of the funding, you know, furlough schemes, that sort of thing, before having to make screeching U-turns. Annalisa Dodds actually making the right call and essentially he was kind of following her lead uh, weeks later. So yeah, I think Sunak, very similar to Johnson in that sense, uh, in that they've been very influential on the UK, if not necessarily for the reasons we like or any positive reason. On the flip side of that then, Pretty Patel did get the immigration bill passed. So I suppose it's going to have a massive impact in the UK in the future. The uh, bullying allegations used to say at the Home Office, still in office despite the report. I always have half an eye on Pretty Patel because I think she has leadership ambitions. Um, although I think even in on that score, Sunak, I think, out outshines i think it'll be sunak is now in is definitely i think in next prime minister category whether or not given tory leadership elections that actually means he would win is a different case in point yeah i i agree i think it does have to be sunak sunak has very much managed to play the current situation into him being part of the conversation of next potential prime minister whilst patel hasn't I still think you're right that she probably does have leadership ambitions and she's, I feel like, a dark horse candidate at this point. Patel is still one to watch and could be still be very, very dangerous. Both for Sunak's premiership and the nation as a whole. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so Shadow Minister then, neither of us picked Keir Starmer, even though he was my pick in 2019. So you picked uh, Angela Rayner for this one. I picked Rebecca Long-Bailey. Um, again, pretty clear, I think, winner, isn't it? Sim- simply because Angela Rayner has maintained her position as a as a as a, uh, a fr- shadow front bencher for uh, for the Labour Party, whilst for Rebecca Long Bailey has not, not, thus limiting her ability to actually move and shake things. Um, Long Bailey didn't do as well as anybody thought that she would, 
uh, really in the leadership election, obviously losing out to Starmer. Yeah, I don't think there's much of a case really to make for, for Long Bailey because even since kind of moving onto the back benches, she seems to have just faded into obscurity. She could have been, uh, you know, the, the the queen over the water, the, the rallying point for, for the left, but she hasn't been that at all. I think you're slightly dismissive of, of Long Bailey saying that she's faded into obscurity. It's an interesting, and we'll talk about this again where I think we get to your Owen Jones pick of how does the, how is the Labour left responding to the changed circumstances in which they find themselves? My impression is it's not really Long Bailey's style to be the the leader of the campaign group. You know, Richard Bergen, Ian Lavery, I think, even Diane Abbott actually to a certain extent have made themselves more, I think, outspoken critics of some of the direction of that Labour's gone over the past few months and, and Long Bailey hasn't done that. I'm guessing because, which I think is fine. I, I think I I wonder if it's more an angling for a return to the shadow front bench. So moving on, Angela Rayner. So uh, deputy leader, as you say, successful, overwhelmingly so, pretty convincing win. Yeah. As party chair, very, I think, important role, especially mm-hmm. responding to the EHRC report which is happening at the moment. And when we mentioned this in April, but I think it's still true. I think it's very interesting how the leader and deputy leader, it's Keir and Angela, it, it, it is a unit. And I think that's yeah. significant and symbolic. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah, it really is significant that it's uh, pretty much all of the communications that go out to uh, Labour Party members are from both of them. Very rarely is it just from 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 one or the other. There is a definite partnership, I think, between Starmer and Rayner, which is great. Um, I, I genuinely do like to see it. Her, her role is a very much an internal looking one. And apparently that, that was something she asked for and she wanted to do, which is, but it's also a very quiet role. So it's really difficult to actually say these are the overall impacts and things. Certainly there are a couple of big ticket items like the EHRC report. And more broadly, a lot of the things that, that she'll be looking at aren't going to be things that even us are paying attention to. Speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> some of the things that... Vain is looking at the party chair of the um, the run to rebuild, so trying to encourage key workers to run, looking at trying to encourage more female candidates. So if in future we have a new generation of Labour politicians coming through, I think Angela Rayner could play her part in that. Again, that's not something that we can necessarily talk about. We're not going to see that in effect in 19 days' time. We might see it in 19 yeah. years. In terms of what we're actually meant to be talking about, which is winner, she's the winner hands down. Yeah, all right. The, the writing's on the wall, isn't it? I think it's one of those where just going to try and check the scorecard to see if the the, the early votes coming in are going to be able to overtake. <laughs> so if we say we've got one score draw, to, yeah, and you're two up with with four to play. So let's let's get on. So now. Politician not from Labour or the Conservatives. You picked Ian Blackford, the SNP representative leader in Westminster. I picked Ed Davey. I'm going to say Ed because... I would agree. <laughs> because, so Ed Davey was acting leader, finally uh, became Lib Dem leader, both, I think, well, finally, both in terms of the sheer length of the contest. Sorry, Mark. And also the fact that he tried to become leader already. So second attempt. So in terms of trajectory, 
wins in Blackford not had much of an impact, I don't think, in Westminster. I think that's partly, and we, we said this at the time, it's partly the uh, parliamentary arithmetic means, okay, the SNP have a sizable block. It's not really very much that they can do. But I think it's been interesting seeing Ed Davey lead on issues like carers. I think he's been yeah. quite big on. And I think that's an issue that seems quite personal to him as well. And obviously goes with the grain of public concerns during the pandemic. Similar to Keir Starmer in a way, I think, that the sort of backing away from some of the Brexit rhetoric and trying instead to focus on other issues to kind of build trust and credibility. It's, it's been interesting to watch. Again, it's very much a work in progress, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of like go back to the base base point, 100% Ed Davey had a much more influential year than uh, Ian Blackford has. You're right about the SNP and their and, and their you know their block being their block of MPs in Westminster being large, noticeable, but all in all, due to due to how it's set up and the fact that they're Scottish MPs and and there are devolved devolved issues and things like that, not necessarily having as much influence as they otherwise would have done. What's and I think that's been further kind of uh, in, in 2020 at least been further kind of uh, deepened by the fact that we've had the pandemic and health is a devolved issue at the same time the SNP have kind of mucked up and screwed up some things in Scotland as well so they, they can't necessarily go on the attack in the way that they might otherwise have liked to done and even if they did well it's in England why 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 are they talking about English matters when when, uh, when 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 they're the Scottish National Party? So yeah, I, I think by virtue of that alone, Blackford can't make a make a claim. Davy, I think by winning the uh, election for leadership uh, for the Lib Dems, that 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 kind of puts him in a in, 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 in even a standard year would put him in strong contention for for this kind of position and in this kind of discussion as you say an awful lot of it is still to be determined whilst there have been some small moments of cut through uh, overall the Lib Dems haven't really made a massive impact this year given how long they were running a leadership contest for that doesn't necessarily surprise me Davey's been put in a position where he can be uh, a future influencer and it will be interesting to see next year how that actually um, wrangles out for him yeah we're given the multitude of elections going on I think it would be interesting to have a think about I genuinely don't know the answer to this um, but think about what what are the Lib Dems looking to achieve what would be success for them yeah. um, and that that's something I think we can pay we can put half an eye on I think I think Boris Johnson's doing a better job at boosting the SNP than Ian Blackford is at the moment, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, no, absolutely. So finally, my first unequivocal win. Let's see if I can keep up the momentum. Backbench pick. I went for Brexit hardman Steve Baker. You went for Jess Phillips. Um, thought at the time to be running a campaign for the leadership, which she was and, and then wasn't. But yeah. is, as predicted, another one of those things we got right. We should put that on the plaque. Um, we should make a mug for Harvey Champagne as well, our correct predictions of 2020. <laughs> um, but so, so, Jess, shadow minister in the Home Office team with a portfolio of um, domestic violence. And Jess 
Phillips is perfect in that role. I, I think you're right that uh, I think Jess Phillips has had a, a decent year. Um, her her leadership campaign did not go the way I think um, she expected it to. Um, in that she didn't get through to the to the member vote at all. As you say, she's been put in a position where she uh, on an issue that she's very passionate about. She's an effective communicator. It's domestic violence and, and issues surrounding it is something that has actually come up as part of the pandemic uh, uh, because obviously the issues of lockdown quarantining uh, presents dangers uh, for people who are who are who are vulnerable to domestic violence so yeah there is a definite strong case to to make for Phillips to be the to, to have been influential to have been a mover and shaker that said I, I think it's Steve Baker. I think he's had a much more influential year overall. Just again, if we just look at the fact that we have, we're in the middle of this pandemic, Steve Baker has managed to leverage the ERJ, the European Research Group, to turn it into a new research group, which has now become anti-lockdown, anti-quarantine, uh, pro-economy, pro as they probably describe it. If you can tell, uh, listeners, there were air quotes being done. That almost on its own probably is going to be influencing the government's decisions moving forward, uh, which in turn uh, means that he's been very influential and, and moved and moved and shaken things up. And that's before we even get to the fact that Baker is is like the sword of Damocles when it comes to Brexit looming over Boris Johnson's head. I I would agree partly because he's my pick, but also I thought that might factor into it. Also, for the reasons you say, because I don't think they've rolled... I think there is still a European research group, but there's now a coronavirus research group. So they're, they're, they're both... They're doing a bad job at researching both topics. Um, and, as you say, and on the Brexit side, the fact that our, um, whether or not we have food in January um, and the weird psychodrama that's happening inside Boris Johnson's belly, well... The reason why Boris Johnson may well decide bugger it, it's a callback to earlier in the episode, Steve. If listeners, yeah, have I, 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 know, I know it just took me a second to remember. Just, I was just like, bet, bet, oh yeah. Some of us assume that our listeners were able to remember back more than thirty minutes ago, unlike <laughs> certain cabinet ministers. But if we assume that the reason Boris Johnson is quite is quite is quite no deal curious is because if there's a deal that is seen to have sold Britain out, whatever that looks like. Steve Bacon giving it 50 backbenchers to put in letters tomorrow. Whereas if he goes over the cliff, the cabinet will say nothing. And maybe Tom Tugan hat and Tobias Elwood will go, oh, but that's not nice. It, it, in fact, it's depressing how effective a pick he was considering the government's got an 80 seat majority. Final two sections then. Commentator or activist, your pick, Steve, was Owen Jones. Mine was Geordie Gregg, editor of the Daily Mail. Yeah, so this is an... I think an interesting one. Uh, I think you already alluded to earlier in the episode how, in many ways, what Owen Jones is doing is is become has, has become almost emblematic of of the of the Labour left trying to find its place in the post Corbyn world. Owen Jones is clearly a very influential individual, still um, with given in, uh, in in Labour circles in left wing circles. But it's difficult to say at the moment whether or not he's actually having an impact on things or if he's just chasing uh, the crowd. And I'd say at the moment he's probably more chasing the crowd than he is leading the way, if, if you get what I mean. 
So you can look at other things at the fact that, you know, he's seemingly trying to build himself a little left-wing media empire by starting new kind of like media projects, including some video stuff. He doesn't pitch it as rivaling Navara media, but it operates in that, in, in some ways, in a very similar kind of space. Is he rivaling us? Probably doesn't even know we exist, but probably. Owen Jones can write. Owen Jones is passionate about social justice. I think some of the better columns he's written this year are when he's talking about issues that aren't related to the Labour Party, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, issue of sick pay or the issue of the deportation flight to Jamaica recently. I think the there's an article that we're probably going to talk about on a Patreon episode, if not today or tomorrow, then soon, about whether or not Remainers is a blame for a hard Brexit, um, which caused a few ripples. Um, not sure if I necessarily agree with a lot of it, um, there's not uh, one of his more recent articles i think was talking about how the labor left and the labor leadership need to ha- have a think more about their image for their vision for society um and the, the main issue i had with it is that they said that kirstama could be that you know the labor government with the first transformative or labor had a chance for the first transformative labor government since clement attlee and as someone who has a very sneaking regard for harold wilson i think it's a very harsh on the Wilson government and I think to some extent the Blair government as well to say those governments were not transformative um yeah but that's just me meanwhile the Daily Mail overtook the Sun this year to become the UK's best-selling newspaper so, to be honest I feel like in terms of Geordie Gregg's influence that stat says it all the sun is slowly setting uh, oh. and the Daily Mail is rising see what he did there uh, and, uh, and I have some clever wordplay on occasion uh, in between the stutters and ers. I wonder as well, sorry, I did them out. I also wonder if there's a headline today, and maybe, again, this is just the fallacy of seeing the last headline you saw, but the Daily Mail headline today is about that we're going to send in gunboats because apparently the, I think that there was a bit of an issue with the print run and they put the 1908 headline out instead. But I wonder if headlines like that actually move and shake in European capitals as well. Um, they absolutely do. I mean, one of the, 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 the themes we've said of the, the, the Britain's Brexit negotiations has been they just seem to forget that just because like most of Britain can't speak German and therefore doesn't read the Spiegel or doesn't speak French fluently enough to read Le Monde, they seem to think that, oh, they can't read the Sun. They can't read the Daily Mail. They can't read all of the things that they obviously can and do read because they all speak English. But those sorts of headlines absolutely are probably a good way to say this is how the Daily Mail is a mover and shaker. It gets read as is probably by European uh, leaders in the EU who are looking at it and kind of going. Okay, well, this is probably the, the the line that the British government is going to take because the British government is influenced by these sorts of headlines because they feel that an awful and, and they are in some ways correct uh, to assume that an awful lot of their vote is aligned with those sorts of headlines. So yeah, I, I think you're right that probably Geordie Gregg does come out on top there. The late votes have come in from Waco County, so. Um... <laughs> Now, I've got three influential picks to your two. If we assume it's a score draw, even though I picked the Prime Minister, which um, I will legislate to the Supreme Court, um, get the text representatives involved. (laughs) Um, So it all comes down to the wild card. Your wild card was Andrew Bailey, who's the Governor of the Bank of England. My Mm -hmm. wild card was Leo Varadkar. 
Andrew Bailey slashed Bank of England interest rates, I think it's one of the lowest rates ever. I suppose that has allowed the government to borrow a huge amount of cash. And it'd be nice, just a little bit nice, if Rishi Sunak would then use that as the hint to say, it's fine, guys, I'm going to cover your jobs and your businesses and borrow a lot more cash because money is cheap and we can invest it. But that would involve actual long-term thinking long-term thinking. Uh, yeah. um whereas leo varadkar is no longer the irish tarasek so depends how hardball you want to make this if you want to make yeah. it in a bush gore in florida situation i think you can say that leo varadkar is very much the hanging chad um, <laughs> he's lost influence um if you want to make it a generic really i should have picked emmanuel macron really that would be a more sensible pick if you want to make Leo Varadkar a sort of a general stand-in for the EU27 and, and Brexit stuff. Hilarious this week that Boris Johnson tried to phone Merkel and Macron. They wouldn't take his call. It's almost like they've learned nothing. Like the EU negotiates as a block and they're not. Don't try and pick off member states because it's not going to happen. Yeah, well, apparently um, Johnson was at some some meal as part of, I don't know if it was specifically the negotiations or a more general European meeting about something or other. Um, and apparently he's just pissed off everybody uh, in Europe with the, with the manner in which he was kind of behaving and acting and just trying to kind of like wheedle everybody off to do side deals and, and, and things like that. Because as you say, the government has not learned that the EU stands as one and is acting as a block yes they have their differences but broadly speaking they're all aligned in in, in, in towards their attitude towards britain which is basically at the moment screw those guys we don't care anymore and amazingly steve there are bigger issues than brexit that the european 27 are discussing like uh, climate change you might have heard of mm -hmm. and there was a european that's what they were meant to be talking about this week i think the meeting went on for 18 hours or something daft and they talked about Brexit for 10 minutes, and which I think they basically said, yeah, what we said last time and the time before that. I, I, I might be misremembering, mis but I'm pretty sure one of the reasons you chose Leo Varadkar was over the Northern Irish border situation. The, the, the likelihood that as as Taosech, uh, the influence he would have over that, that was it, uh, over that outcome. Now, he's not Taosech at the moment. I believe there's some kind of weird deal in place where he's going to be Taosech again in like six months' time or, or something. It was a bit of a weird, yeah, a weird deal that was struck. But Bailey has kind of done everything that I feel like he was meant to meant to do, and I was kind of expecting him to do to be influential. It's just that you, if you had a competent government, they'd be paying attention. Instead, we've got Rishi Sunak concerned about oh, we're spending too much money, rather than going oh, it's really cheap to to get money now or we can borrow to invest great that's that's brilliant by virtue of the fact that he's had to deal with a bunch of incompetence i kind of it makes it very hard for me to say that bailey has had the influence i thought he would have done but at the same time i don't think you can just turn around and say leo varadkar is a stand-in for the eu 27 <laughs> no but i what we could say is that if he's a stand-in for the irish tower sack I think it's yeah. interesting that, as you, as you say, the, one of the reasons was because we were talking in the context of a general election where comments by Boris Johnson about how everything would be smooth and fine and dandy, which were not true and completely contradicted yep. Steve Barclay, then Brexit secretary. Um, and so thought that might be a bigger factor when Brexit negotiations hit the fan around about now, actually. Um, however, I think it's interesting that 
the main sticking points are, as we said last week, fish, state aid, governance. And they are issues where it's, that it's not... On the Irish border, I feel like the EU27 are saying, what do you want, Ireland? We'll listen to you. On these issues, yeah. it's more it's the EU as a block. Actually, they're all pretty united. And that's why you've got people like Emmanuel Macron threatening to to throw their veto and they're becoming more bigger players, I think. So yeah. I think in that sense, actually, the, the Irish border issue has had less of an impact than I thought it would in the Brexit talks, but that's only because they've, um, rather than concentrating on that micro issue, and maybe that would be a problem, instead the whole thing is just a gigantic mess yeah, it's almost to a degree they've just hit the point where it doesn't matter about the smaller details because the bigger details are just too problematic. So you never get you you don't get down to those issues which might have been problematic. But what's know. what's the opposite of the analogy that if you look after the pennies, the pounds take care of themselves? Like with so many things, I'm just remembering an episode of The West Wing, um, which works as a <laughs> as an example of it, where. Um, uh, Bartlett is desperate to try and hold peace talks between uh, Palestine and Israel when everybody from the beginning of the episode goes, yeah, but there's absolutely no point because Jerusalem will be an issue and you're like, it's fine, we'll just get through that and then sure enough, right at the end of the episode they get agree everything and then they hit the issue of Jerusalem and they go no, we can't come to an agreement. And I, think, I think that's kind of what we were expecting on like, the Irish border but we never got to the point where we were discussing Jerusalem because you know we were too busy arguing about everything else so in terms of actually the influence i'd say you probably if you if you take leah radker as a stand-in for the tau sech uh, position i, I think you, you can probably make the case that it's the tau sech that's been more more influential than than, than, than bailey i'll take that because i think that means my pick shades yours and that probably it, it does in the meantime, we'll also be recording material from our champagners on patreon as we said if people wanted to access any of that grade a gold that's not how you grade gold but how would you do it steve uh, you'd head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne uh, where if you throw us a couple of uh, quid every month you will gain access to uh, unique content um, unique episodes, unique blog posts, all of those sorts of things, early access to bits and pieces as we do them um, as well. Um, which, and all the money goes to helping us support and, and, and run the podcast. Um, if you were to head over there right now, you'd find that there was a hastily put up uh, a, 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 a podcast on what Labour will do uh, if the if a uh, Brexit deal is brought to the uh, to the House of Commons uh, and in Parliament, uh, which we hastily put it up because probably by tomorrow well, they'll be announcing no deal as a thing. So uh, it may or may, may not be a completely redundant uh, analysis, but we anal- analysed it anyway for uh, for your enjoyment. How would we know if it was redundant if we hadn't analysed it? You you can't be too true. Terrible. James Cram designed our logo you can follow him on twitter at james cram dave depper composed our theme tune bookie good times our website is not enough and our facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne i'm on twitter at paperback rioter i'm at acoustic radical happy plotting <laughs>